Uh, good morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Graham, and I have the, the privilege of being one of the pastors here uh, at City Reach. Um, before I was um, a pastor, I used to be a school teacher, and uh, I worked for about seven years for the education department uh, in Hong Kong. And Part of that was that we would have to write reports, and uh, I would, my job was to go around to, to different schools and we'd help them out with curriculum and uh, some teaching training, and then at the end of the year, I would write this report, and it would have to be quite detailed, but one of the things about writing a report for the education department is that you had to learn to say what you wanted to say without saying what you really said. Um, teachers will understand what I mean, right? So you, you get to your report card, and what you really want to write is works well under constant supervision and cornered like a rat in a trap. But what you actually write is needs encouragement to do his work on his own. Um, so that, that's report writing. And today, we've reached the end of this journey in Ecclesiastes. Now, I don't know about you, but when you get to the end of something, it's almost like this, this bitter sweetness to it. You're, you're kind of relieved. We got to the end, and Ecclesiastes has been this unusual book. Uh, but also, at the same time, uh, while we relieve, there's this, this sadness, because I don't know about you, but I feel like we've, we've journeyed with the preacher. We've got to know the preacher in a new way. We've seen life through his eyes, and now he ends. And today, it's as if Solomon is giving his final report on this experiment looking at life under the sun. Now, Solomon, thankfully, did not work for the education department, so he's not bound to be nice. He's not has to word his words correctly. He's just going to be brutally honest. And what we've noticed, if we've learned anything about him, is that he's been brutally honest all the way through this journey, and today he's even more brutally honest as he ends. Now, he starts with his conclusion. So if you're reading his report Here's the conclusion, and he says this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember. Now, why does he choose this word? Because the truth is, we forget. We forget, right? When, when you're young especially, there's so many things that crave your attention, that draw you in. And Solomon is saying, like, don't, don't be distracted by those things. If you're, if you're young, there's so many things that you want to do. So this last week, I Googled things to do while you're young. And clearly it wasn't for me, right? But <clears throat> there was this long list of things that you should do in your life while you're young. And the, the list included stuff like travel, party, play sports, study, learn a language, shop, spend, holiday, reflect, post, and so on. Now, the one thing is that in this list, there was not one mention of God. Not one emphasis on your life should actually include Him. Now, we've actually now in a generation where we've got this little acronym called FOMO, which means fear of missing out. There's so much going on. There's so much demanding our attention, and we don't want to miss out on anything. 
And I've spoken with young people about Jesus, and it's, it's not as if they don't believe in God, but they kind of have this answer, and they go like, well, yeah, like I'll deal with that when I'm older, or when I'm older, I'll think about it then. But you know, right now, I'm, I just, I just, I'm young, and I want to have fun. And there's this, this idea somehow that, that actually following God is, is going to kill all your fun. Right, God's a bit of a killjoy. And Solomon, right out of the blocks, he corrects that thinking and he says, no, no, that's wrong thinking because he is your creator. Now, he's deliberately chosen that word. He could have said, remember God in the days of your youth or remember the Lord in the days of your youth, but he doesn't. He chooses this word, remember your creator. Now, he does that because he wants to remind us that your life is not your own. You were given life by him. He gave you life. And one day, he's going to ask, ask for it back. And we're going to have to stand before him, and he's going to ask us what we did with our lives. You know, another thing is that we can think we can do whatever we want when we're young, kind of like it doesn't really matter. And we can live how we want, we can do what we want. And then when we're older, maybe when we meet that nice person that we always think about, then we'll, then we'll slow down and settle down and we won't do the things that we once did and, and we'll be different. Now the truth is, what you do is who you become. And those patterns of behavior and thinking that you put into your life from youth, they stick with you. Uh, one quote I heard said, most people spend their youth ruining the rest of their lives. And so you can see there's this almost desperate plea from Solomon. He's straight away, before you get to the end of the report, I want you to know this. And he's talking to young people. Remember God in everything. Everything that you pursue, remember him. Everything that you dream about doing, remember him. Every desire you have, remember him. Now, Solomon actually gives us this, this, this reason that he puts forth for remembering God. And he says, this is why it's important to remember God in your youth. Because one day, you're going to get old. One day, you're going to look back on life, and I don't want you to get to that point where you look back on life with sorrow and regret. You know, uh, some of the most important decisions you make, you make while you're young. Who are you going to marry? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? You make those decisions when you're young. And Solomon's pleading with young people, please do that with God in mind. Do that with God in mind. But here's one of the problems, is when you're young, you can never really imagine being old, right? It's kind of as if like old people are this different species. You know, like they've, they've kind of always been that way. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I was 10, I used to think someone who was 18 was old. And then when I was 18, I thought, no, it's, it's probably someone who's 25. They're really old. And then when I got to 25, and I, oh, I must be 35, you know, like they're really old. And then I got to 35, and, and now it's 45, and I'm 45, and I don't, it must be, must be someone else. There must be another level there. But um, the other day, I, t I was telling my kids that I used to surf. 
And they started laughing. Like, screw it, right? Like, children, they're such confidence builders. And, and it's like, their answer was, no, you're, you're too old to surf, and you're not cool. And it's, it's kind of like this, right? This, this picture, I found a little meme that came up. This is how I view myself, and I realized this is how my kids view me. But you know, there, there, there does come a point in your life when you do realize that one day, it is going to be you, that we will all get old. Uh, for me, it was when I was taking a service at an aged care home in, in Adelaide a couple of years ago, and just as the service was starting, like kind of the people come in slowly, and it, these things do take time as they bring people from their rooms, and you, you have this opportunity to, to talk to people, and they love telling you about their life, and, they, and you sit down, and they say, I moved here in, in 1958, and I used to drive a convertible, and I, I had the most lovely girlfriend, and I was it suddenly hit me, oh my goodness, one day that's going to be me. And I'm going to be telling my story to someone else. It won't involve a convertible, but I'm going to be telling people that stories. And, and Ecclesiastes tells us it's, it's actually good to think that way, to have this view in mind, know that your days are finite, that the youth and energy you feel will not last forever. And then Solomon, in his brutal honesty, paints this uh, description of old age. He, actually, it's beautiful poetry. It really is. But it's a pretty bleak picture of growing old. And he uses these metaphors of the body kind of wasting away. And, and this is what he says. He says, the, the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. It's, it's kind of this, he's using this metaphor of this great house, this grand house that's now in decline, right? It's kind of like you, you walk past this house and you, and you see it and you think to yourself, oh, wow, that house in its day must have been beautiful, right? You, you see the, 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 the style and, and what it might have represented and you think to yourself, oh, inside there must have been all this hospitality and liveliness and, and it's all gone, now all you can see are kind of cracked windows and the doors are falling off the hinges and, and the colors are fading. Uh, it's kind of like this. I'll show you a picture. You, you walk past and you look at that house and think, oh, in its day, it must have been beautiful. And it's a really sad picture of, of something that once was. You know, if, if Solomon wasn't using metaphors, he would basically say something like this. Your teeth start falling out, your eyes strain to see anything, your hearing goes, you don't move very fast, and you don't have the desires that you once had. No one says amen at the end of that, right? <laughs> and then he describes death. He's just like, this is the moment when you die. And he, he describes it as, as a broken cistern or a broken well. It's like this is the picture of your end of your life. He talks about a, a silver cord snaps and the jaw is broken. And this, this, this well, if you can imagine a well where you've always drunk from it, right? You've always drawn water from it and now it's useless. You can't draw any more from it. It's you, you've... 
You look at it and it's, it's always given you water, always refreshed you, but now it lies empty. And it's this, this rather sad description of old age and as you approach death. But you know the thing that makes me even sadder? It's not so much the physical description of aging and, and as you approach death, but Solomon is giving you an insight into his thinking about it. And what we see in him is that he has nothing to look forward to in anticipation. There's no hope in his eyes. But he's also got nothing to look back on with satisfaction. You know, the, the, it's a sad thing when you grow old and you look back on your life and there is nothing that you look back on that is satisfying. And so sad that you get to that point and you look forward and you go, I have no hope. It's the end. I have no hope. Nothing to look forward to with anticipation. Now, Solomon is being his honest self. He has displayed honesty and he, he looks back on his life and he assesses what he's done and he goes, I just can't see anything worthwhile in it. Uh, you know, we, we saw earlier in Ecclesiastes when Solomon set out to try everything. He tried knowledge, he tried education, he tried work, he tried enjoyment, he pursued every single pleasure that he could. You know, we might, we might say today that he, he pursued wine, woman, and song. Now, there's this, this verse that we missed uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and it's this verse that illustrates what Solomon did and then the results of doing that. And this is the verse. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And it says this, I have found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Um, you know, I've never heard a preacher preach on this verse has anyone ever heard anyone like preach on this verse, laugh? All right, well, today you're going to hear it. Now, we often use this verse as this awkward thing, and we, we use it as humor, but actually it's very sad. And just before we start, this might be one of those moments where the men think, ha, oh, there we go, Solomon thinks the men are better. And actually, guys, if we look at it, you're only 0.01% better. So let's get perspective what Solomon's really saying. You're not actually that great in his eyes either. But why say this at all? Why come to this conclusion of how he looks at women this way? Well, you have to understand Solomon in his pursuit of pleasure. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women in his life. He collected women like objects, collected them like one might collect footy cards. He treated them as nothing more than objects to be obtained. Now, the truth is, when you treat people like objects for your own selfish desires, and the more you treat them that way, what eventually happens is that you will trust no one and you will have respect for no one so that's the meaning behind that verse it gives us very sad insight into how solomon actually used people 
especially women, and come to this very sad conclusion. He, he was looking for intimacy with everyone, and he found out that he could have intimacy with no one. Now, he also tried other things. He, he built wealth, and he did. He built all these wonders of the world that people came to see, and yet, he looks back on all that, all that he's done, and he can't find anything to look back on with satisfaction. I mean, the truth is Solomon probably did more things in his life than all of us put together have done. And yet he goes, I just can't see anything in it. Now, the sad thing is that there are thousands of people who are reaching old age exactly like this, where they feel that they have nothing to look forward to, nothing with anticipation and hope. And they look back on their lives and they have nothing to look back on with satisfaction. It's this, this hollow and empty life. Now, it's not a surprise that a man who looks back on his life, who's reached old age, gets to that point. And the only thing he can do is just plead with young people. Please don't be like me. Don't be like me. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. But having said that, then he gives this conclusion. He goes, here's my conclusion, right? This experiment of life under the sun, this is all we got. Here's the main point I want to make. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Right? He started off, at the, at the, we started off in Ecclesiastes, this is exactly what he said. It's meaningless, it's useless, it's hopeless, the, the Hebrew word there for vanity is, is the word basically translated vapor. You know, like when you see a little bit of smoke and you think, you think you can grab it, and you try, but you can't. It's just, there's nothing there when you open your hand. And that's what Solomon's saying, <clears throat> is that for him, it's useless. I can't see any point in it. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is he right to say that? Is he right to come to this conclusion? Yes. If, if there's only this life under the sun. If this is all there is and there's no hope beyond the grave and this life is all we get with all its injustices and everything that we face, then yes, he's right. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Uh, I think it was Billy Graham that said this, but Billy Graham said this. He said, life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. All right, now some of you got that. It's because we don't use pencils anymore, right? So maybe young people ask your parents what a pencil was and they'll show you. But really, life without God, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have a point. And Solomon, he's basically saying, he's pleading with young people, and you can see him wrestling with you guys. Basically, I know, I know that the most important thing is that you consider God in everything. Remember him in everything, but I just can't fully explain why. That was his frustration. And that ends his summary of life under the sun. That's the end of his thoughts. But 
there's this little postscript. It's like a commentator came on and just added an ending to Ecclesiastes. It's like my boss, when I handed in my reports for my different schools, he would look at them and he would write a postscript, right? He'd kind of summarize what's been said, highlight the good bits and correct maybe some of the, the wrong things. But he had this little postscript. Now, the commentator, he begins by commending the preacher, by commending Solomon. He says, he says this, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He's saying, listen, let's just stop. Actually, the preacher, he did give us so much, right? He actually taught us wisdom and he packaged them in these little proverbs that make them very easy to remember. And, and we, the world will benefit from his wisdom that he put down. And we still benefit from his wisdom that he put down, especially in the book of Proverbs. Um, I remember as a young believer, someone said to me, just, hey, one of the best things you can do before you go to sleep at night is, is read a psalm or read a chapter from the book of Proverbs. And for years, I practiced that habit, and it, it really is a blessing to be reminded of wisdom. And um, recently, we've been teaching our kids uh, a proverb, Proverbs 15.1, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath uh, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, who thinks that's a good little bit of wisdom? Is that, you agree with that? All right, now, second question, how many of you always practice that wisdom? Yes, yeah, Solomon was like that too, right? He had all this wisdom for everyone else, but he didn't really practice it himself. Actually, it, it reminds me, uh, the other day, uh, my wife and I were at the, at the dishwasher. Now, I don't know, if, it always seems to happen around the dishwasher, right? But um, we, we were starting to get a little bit edgy with each other. And at that moment, my little eight-year-old daughter walks up between us, and she looks at us, and she goes, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stares away. And there we were, completely and utterly rebuked by an eight-year-old, applying God's wisdom. But it's true. You see, Solomon really did try. He really did, and he did make a difference, even though he might not see it so clearly. And then the commentator goes down, and he gives his conclusion. He says, okay, this is, this is my conclusion on the matter. And this is verses 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, when, whenever we read Scripture, whenever we hear Scripture taught or preached, the one question we should always be asking ourselves is, what is God like? What is he really like? Not what I want him to be like or, or I've made him to be like, but Teach me, Lord, from you, what are you really like? And it's the commonest saying, like, knowing God how I know him, I want you to fear him and, and follow the way that he's taught you to live. It's really important. You know, we, we have to fear God because the one thing that you need to know is that he is our judge. There will be a reckoning one day, and it is God himself who we will stand before. 
and we will give accounts of our lives. And, you know, God is a completely just and trustworthy judge. He has seen everything that you've thought or said or done. He's seen every injustice committed against you. He has all the evidence that he needs, right? He doesn't need lawyers, doesn't need policemen. He's seen it all. There's nothing that can be hidden from him. Now, that should give us great comfort. It should give us great comfort knowing that God is going to be completely just. He's going to be completely fair. But on the other side of the coin, knowing that, that should make us tremble. It makes me tremble. Knowing that God sees everything, that there's nothing you've done that he will not be aware of, that he will not know about, and knowing that he is perfectly just in his judgment, you're not going to have anyone to testify on your behalf. You got no one you're going to lean on in that moment, no favors that you can call in. It's just you and God. And we know from his word, he has no favorites. Now, if that is true, and it is true, then we should fear God. We should approach him with reverence and awe before it's too late. We should live our lives from the days of our youth with him in mind, knowing that he is our creator. But is that the end? Is that where we should stop? Is, is that all the advice and the counsel we need from Ecclesiastes? Well, actually, there's a post postscript, right? And it happens when we turn to the New Testament, right? Suddenly, there's this light that goes on and it shines perspective on everything we've read. It's kind of like this jewelry box. And, and while we've been studying Ecclesiastes, we've been looking at this closed jewelry box and we looked at one side and go, oh yeah, that's interesting. That gives us perspective. And, and we turn it and we see another side and we go, yes, that's, that's interesting. That's showing us what we should value and what we shouldn't value. But now what we do is we open that jewelry box and this, this, it's like this jewel inside that just shines bright. It brings life and meaning to everything. You know, Solomon, the best he could say to us today is that death is tragic. But when you turn to the New Testament, this is what it says. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, what does that mean but fruitful labor for me? Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, my desire, my greatest hope is that I want to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. What a hope. What a hope to say that. No one else can say that. No one else can say that with such confidence. I, I, I urge you guys, next time you're at a dinner party with people that you don't really know, try and bring up the subject of death. No one really likes talking about it. But try and do it and then throw in this line. Well, actually, I think death is gain. They will look at you as if you're nuts. But it's true for us as a believer. Death is gain. You see, Paul is saying here that, oh my goodness, death is just a doorway to being with Christ. He's got all this anticipation for a future, a hope in a future. 
Now, Paul says this. He says in this little bit from Philippians, he says, I am eager to go, but willing to stay for your sake. I'm eager to go and be with Christ, but I'm willing to stay for your sake. Now, we often reverse that. And we often think we have this attitude of, you know what, I'm eager to stay. I'll do everything that I can to stay, but I'm, I'm kind of willing to go. Now, while that is commendable, it doesn't go far enough to fully understand, to fully be convinced in your heart that death is gain. When would you say something like that? When would you confidently say, oh my goodness, death is gain? It only is possible when Christ is your treasure. When he's the thing that you desire above all else. There's nothing on earth I desire, only him. Who have I in heaven? Only but you. That is only possible when we can say that. And Solomon couldn't see that. He didn't have this anticipation. But here we see that actually in Christ, we, death, is, death has lost its sting. Oh my goodness, it's just become a doorway. You know, Solomon couldn't look back on his life with satisfaction. Because he, he, despite everything that he had, he had done, he just wasn't sure if he had spent his life on the right things. But then we, we open the jewelry box and we gaze at the jewel and it says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You know, it's this beautiful picture of, of Paul getting to the end of his life and he can look back on his life with this incredible sense of satisfaction because he's done exactly what God wanted him to do. And it's this picture of a runner. I've run the race. I've fought the fight. I've kept the faith. It's been a worthwhile thing. I know I've left a legacy. But then he also just paints this picture of the future. He goes, now I've even got more things to look forward to. I've got, I will be with the righteous judge. He's going to give me a crown. What anticipation. You know, Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing to look forward to in old age except pain and humiliation. But then we look at that jewelry box, and this is what it says. It says, therefore, do not lose heart, though outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. As Paul's saying here, yes, the house might be falling apart on the outside. The windows might be breaking. The eyes might be coming dim. The teeth might be falling out. But inside, oh my goodness, inside we are becoming more beautiful we're becoming more Christ-like. We're becoming more filled with heart, with life. We're becoming more filled with hope, not less. We have more peace, more wisdom. What a hope. It's kind of like this picture, right? If I can show you. Like on the outside of that house, we see it and it doesn't look great. But inside is this joy, this hope, this life. It's a beautiful thing. You know, this really came home to me recently. Um, 
And I think it did through two older people, the interaction I had with two older people. And one of them was a few years ago. Uh, the church we're at in Hong Kong, uh, one of our members, his, his father was dying of cancer. And it was a particularly nasty cancer. And he didn't know Jesus. And, and I went to see him. And he had really, as he had grown older and he had become sick, he had grown bitter and angry at life. His, his wife had left him. He was angry at his children. Uh, he felt all alone. He was angry at being sick. And he had nothing to look forward to with anticipation. He had no joy, no hope. And it was a really, actually, to be honest with you, like unpleasant being there. But then, then, when I took that service at the old, old care facility, there was a dear old lady that I met, Betty. And Betty was sick, and her body was worn out, and she, she didn't have much time left. But Betty just seemed to radiate, right? She had this, this glow about her. She had such joy and excitement. And as I sat next to her having a cup of tea, she, she spoke about her family, about her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren with this, with this affection and gratitude and pride in what they've done in life. And then she spoke about the Lord. And she spoke about him like he was so close to her. She spoke about how excited she was to go and be with him, that she couldn't wait to be with him. And I remember getting into the car after that service, and I had this, this huge lump in my throat. You know that moment where you're just like, please, Lord, don't let anyone see me now, because I'm going to cry soon. But this, this moment, they just realized to me, like, I had gone there to, to minister God's word and give them some encouragement and hope, and yet... I feel like she had taught me something. She taught me hope. She taught me what it really means to, to live a life of satisfaction and, and have this joy of anticipation of being with Jesus. And I want to be like Betty when I get old. <laughs> I want to be like Betty. So yes, it is right to fear God, to have this reverence and awe for him. When we know that he's going to be judged, yes, absolutely, we want to live the way that he's called us to live. Proverbs says that is the beginning of wisdom, is to fear God, but it's just the beginning. And Jesus, when he came, he certainly showed us and taught us to fear the Lord, because he is judge. But Jesus also showed us what it means to love God. And he showed us that by the fact that he loved us first. The fact that, that you are going to stand before a righteous judge and he is going to see everything that you've done, all your gross stuff. And yet Jesus steps into that picture and he says, you know what, I'll take the hit. I'll take the hit. My life, I've only lived to heal and bless and speak truth and love people. But you know what? I'll take the hit for that person. I'll go to the cross. I'll take all their, sh all their shame, all their sin, all their guilt, all their rubbish. I'll take it. But then I'll do even more than that. I will give them my righteousness, my holiness, my perfection. I will give them so that now we are able to stand before a righteous judge. Confident. 
confident not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness that's been given us. That is love. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus laying down his life for us and showing us what it means that we can love him now and live this life of gratitude for him. You know, the Bible tells us we, we were actually without hope. Before God came into to our lives, we actually didn't have a hope. But now we, we are with hope. We were, we were enemies of God, and now we're sons and daughters of God. You see, on the cross, Jesus broke all that. He took down the wall that separated us. He tore the curtain, and he didn't do it while we were trying to sort ourselves out and trying to help God out. It wasn't while we were trying to reach out to him. No, it's, it's he came. And he died for us while we were at our worst. At our worst. What a hope. What a love. You know, when we become disciples of Jesus, he never promises us an easy life. In fact, he actually promises the opposite. He says, you are going to have trouble in this life. But he tells us this. He says, God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. Every single one of us, God has prepared stuff that he wants you to do. He's prepared it long ago that he has planned for you. And you know, the thing is, the confidence that we have in that knowledge, the confidence we have in that promise, that as we walk through life and we're walking with him and we're doing what he wants us to do, the confidence that we have is one day when we reach old age, we can look back on a life of satisfaction, not because we had to guess, did I live right the, the right way? Did I spend my life on the right things? No, we can live, oh my goodness, I did what God wanted me to do. And in that, you can confidently say, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I've kept the faith. You see, life is too short to do everything. You can't do everything. But it's just long enough to do everything God wants you to do. You see, God has prepared for us eternity. It doesn't end here. We don't have to just look at life under the sun. What we have as believers in him is life in the sun, and that is eternal life. It goes on. What anticipation do we have? If you're here this morning and you're a young person, and you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to spend it? All these things that seem so attractive to me. He's your answer. If you're struggling with meaning and purpose in your life, he's your answer. If we're frightened of, of getting old, and we're frightened of death, he's your answer. And you know, if some of us are here today and we're looking back on our lives and we look back with regret, guilt, and shame, I've, I've got good news for you today. Because we don't only serve him as creator and judge. We serve him as savior, redeemer. He comes into our lives and he, he redeems us. The Bible says he takes our ashes and he turns them into beauty. That is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. You see... It's only, it's only in Jesus that we have true hope. While Solomon tried to work out this experiment, what he really needed to hear was Jesus say to him, I am the way, 
I am the truth. I am the life. And that's the answer Solomon needed. You know, as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, we should ask ourselves, what is it that God is wanting to, to, to teach me? And it has been my hope and prayer that as we, as we study this book, that you would stop and reflect on your life. You would evaluate what are you spending your life on? What are you giving your life to? And weigh that up as an eternal perspective. It's also been my, my prayer that you will see the hope that we have in Christ. Everything that He is, all His beauty and majesty is ours. And that we can, we can go to Him. But another question we have to ask ourselves is, is as a church, what is the Lord teaching us from Ecclesiastes? What is He showing us? And I believe firmly it's, it's the Lord saying, follow me. Follow me. Keep the main thing the main thing. You have a beautiful, beautiful message of hope, and this world needs that message. We have the gospel to give. Every one of us sitting here today, if you follow of Jesus, you have someone to thank for telling you about Jesus. Let's be a church that loves that fact, cherishes the gospel, but also has a heart to go out and tell others about him. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's keep serving him and worshiping him and praying for opportunities to tell this world that there is hope, that there is hope, that there isn't just life under the sun, but there is life in the sun. Will you stand with me? I'd love to pray for us as a church. And then we're going to worship. You know, one of the, the ways that we move forward is that we magnify Christ. We make much of Him. But let us pray. Father, we thank You for the preacher. We thank You for His Word to us. We thank You for His honesty. We thank You for giving us this book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, I pray that it would help us know you more. It would help us understand just how beautiful you are and all that we have in you. Lord, we thank you for eternal life. We thank you that you are ours and we are yours. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that rejoices in that fact, that makes much of you. Lord, I pray also that as a church, that you've called us to be bearers of this hope, witnesses to your goodness and kindness. Lord, I pray that this week, would you give us opportunities to share the beautiful hope that we have in you? Would you help us to treasure you? Would you help our hearts be filled with joy and hope in you? Father, we love you. We thank you for your son.